0: Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds, he supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Thanks, Carl. Well, good morning everyone and
1: uh, welcome to the last sermon in our uh, series on uh, Psalms, songs about the Christian life. If uh, this is your first time here this morning... Uh, we've been going through the Psalms, uh, a few Psalms, over the last few weeks. Uh, we've been through Psalm 1 uh, and Psalm 2 and uh, I think Psalm 23 and Psalm 42 and last week was Psalm 73 uh, and this morning we're uh, right at the end almost of the book of Psalms uh, and we're looking uh, at this Psalm which Julian just read. As we begin this morning, I guess the question which I, uh, which I have is if I were to ask you uh, to say what you thought the greatest and the most devastating sin in the life of our church was, I wonder what you would say. What is the most devastating sin uh, in this church, uh, in the church in the world? Uh, What is the sin with the biggest and the most destructive consequences? I'm not sure what you would say, what answer you would come up with, But somewhere close to the top of my list would probably be this one, the lack of praise of God. To my mind, one of the most abhorrent and evil realities which any of us face in our lives is to think small thoughts about God. To have little or no interest in the greatness of God, to not be captivated and transfixed by the glory of God to be so absorbed in self-worship, so absorbed in the worship of society, so absorbed in the worship of stuff that our minds and our words are never lifted up to the heights of the glory and delight in the God who made us and who created us. It's interesting actually in Romans 1 when Paul is, is convicting people of sin, as Julian alluded to earlier, the thing which he, which he speaks about is he says they neither knew God nor thanked him. Isn't that interesting? The two things which he puts together are not knowing God and not thanking him. What is the greatest sin perhaps in the world today? Well, maybe it's this the lack of the praise and of the worship of God. And Psalm 147 is really designed to remedy that situation. And it does that by encouraging Christians to praise God. It begins with a command praise the Lord. In fact, the psalm is full of commands as well as verse 1, there's verse 7, sing to the Lord. Verse 12, extol the Lord. Verse 20 again, praise the Lord. That these commands are there and that they even exist suggests that praising God might not be as instinctive as we'd like to think. These are commands, encouragements as well, to be responded to They're not simply feelings to wait for. Now let me say right at the beginning as we start thinking about this psalm that these commands are not saying if you praise God, God will uh, save you. Uh, No, this psalm is saying, this psalm is addressed to people who already know God. This psalm is written uh, to people who belong to God because of their faith in Jesus. This psalm is addressing Christians And it's saying to those Christians, come on, praise God. There's good reason to praise God. Why praise God? Verse 1, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. God deserves to be praised. It's right, it's good, it's fitting, but it's pleasant as well. So do it. That's what he's saying. It's good, it's fitting and it's pleasant, so do it. Look, praising God is not rocket science. It's, you know, you don't need a degree uh, from a university to be able to praise God. Uh, we praise people all the time. Uh, if you know, if, if a footy player uh, takes a great mark, takes a uh, you know a hanger over the top of someone, uh, you can praise that person, can't you, to their face? You know, if you if you meet them after the game so- somehow, you can say that mark that you took was uh, was sensational. It was it was marvellous. You can praise them straight to their face, or you can praise them uh, to other people. You know, did you see the did you see the mark that uh, that Mark Lecrar took? You know, over the top of uh, one of the Collingwood players. You know, did you see that? <laughs> did you see that mark? It was awesome. Mark Lecrar is a gun. You can praise uh, you can praise uh, people to their face. You can praise people uh, in front of other people. We do it all the time, and it's it's not wrong. to to celebrate the gifts that God has given to people. It's not wrong to do that. But in the same way that we praise people in a much more substantial and a much more significant way, we ought to speak adoring words about God, about the God who made us and who created us and who saved us. Praising isn't some kind of weird religious thing that you do when you come to church on Sunday. It's something that you can do in any time of your life just by speaking True words about God, true loving words about God, either in prayer to God Himself, or by speaking true and loving words about God to other people. The Psalm encourages not only to speak words, but to sing songs as well. Uh, I don't know how many of you do that uh, in the shower, bust out a song, uh, a, a hymn in the in the morning, or driving along uh, the road, uh, bust out a hymn in the car. But it's a good thing to do and this psalm encourages us to do that. One of the great dangers I think actually of of always having music playing in the background, of always having noise, is that it, it drowns out songs about God. But this psalm says, no, we should speak true words about God and sing true and loving words about God. It's amazing, isn't it, to stop and think that we need to be told to do that. It's amazing that God can have done so much for us and yet we need parts of his word to tell us that we need to praise him. It just shows our natural disinterest in God. But the psalm here starts by saying, look, praise God. It's good and it's right and it's fitting. So do it. The rest of the psalm then goes on to help us understand uh, why we should praise God or what we should praise God for. And there's four things which I want to kind of quickly work through. That the psalm uh, shows us that we ought to praise God for, to kind of give us fuel, I guess. You know, if you are to go home and to start speaking words of praise about God, well, what areas can you think about uh, to do that in? The first thing which, uh, about God, which the writer tells us to celebrate, is God's salvation and that's in verses 2 to 6. Uh, verse 2, he says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the exiles of Israel, he heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. The idea of God building up Jerusalem, a city half a world away, maybe isn't that exciting to us and it isn't really that exciting uh, but we have to remember that this is Old Testament language, that Uh, before Jesus came to earth, Jerusalem was a picture of the city of God. It was a a picture of the city, a collection, the gathering of God's people. The writer is talking about God, uh, in New Testament terms, the writer is talking about God building up and increasing the number of his people. He says God gathers the exiles. These people have been driven away from God and God is bringing them back. He's bringing them from the farthest reaches of the earth. He's bringing them to be with him. He brings them back and he heals them and he binds up their broken hearts. Verse 4 uh, says God knows the exact number of the stars and calls them each by name. So uh, so that's how great God's knowledge is of the world. He knows all the stars. He knows each of them by name. Uh, why is he telling us that all of a sudden? Uh, because it's a picture of both extraordinary power and also intimate and personal love. The point is, you see, if God can manage all the stars in the universe and know all of them and know what's going on with each of them and know each of them by name, if God can do that, then it's not a struggle for God to know each and every person by name and to look after each and every person. There's almost certainly a hint back here to Genesis 15 where God told Abraham to go outside and to try and count the stars. Abraham couldn't do that. But God said, don't worry because I know how many there are and I am going to raise up from you a vast multitude of people, Abraham, a vast multitude of people who trust and follow me. And this psalm says God knows each of those people by name. People chosen in Christ in eternity past, as Paul says to Timothy, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God had set aside people for himself and God is bringing those people, bringing them in from the far reaches of the world to know and love Jesus Christ. There are people in this city, in our city, in Launceston, who don't know Jesus yet but who belong to God. God says to Paul in Acts 18, stay here and keep preaching the good news because I have people in this city. There are people in this city who I am going to bring to Jesus Christ who don't know it yet. There may be people in your workplaces who belong to God and who don't know it yet. God's waiting to gather them in. There may be customers who will serve you this week. Uh, sorry, who you will serve this week uh, who belong to God and who God will bring to know Jesus Christ. There might be kids at your school. Uh, some people here work in the, in the Ashley uh, Detention Centre. There may be uh, young people in that prison who belong to God and God will bring to know Jesus Christ. Ben is busy uh, traipsing up and down Innocent Street getting to know people, sharing the love of God with people, making friends with people, sharing the gospel. If there are people there in that block that God has set aside from eternity past, God will bring them to himself. God knows them and he'll bring them in. Jesus will build up his church and he'll gather his people from as far away as they are and he'll bring them to know and to love him. Isn't it wonderful that there are people in this city who are exiled from God and as we love them and as we speak to them words of truth, Jesus is saving them and healing them. The psalm writer says, praise God, because God saves people. It's important to grasp here too, I think, that what he's, he's not celebrating here what God has done for him. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying, praise God because He saved me. Obviously the psalm writer is going to be magnificently happy about the fact that he too has been saved. But he's just happy in the very fact that God is the saving God. His joy is in the character of God, not about simply what God has done for him. If all our joy is just in what God has done for me, then that's kind of a lopsided Uh, excitement, isn't it? A lopsided adoration of God. It probably means that I'm more interested actually in myself than in God and in what God is doing. But this psalm breaks open that narrow kind of myopic view of God and it encourages us to adore God and to celebrate God not because of just what he's done for me but because of what he's doing for people all over the world. He's saving them and bringing them to Jesus. So the first thing that the psalm celebrates is God's salvation. But the next reason that he gives to us for praising God is God's provision in verses 7 to 11. Verse 7 he says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. Now uh, we might not all use the harp anymore. I know uh, Jodie Hill, uh, she plays the harp. And we're not kind of held ransom to, uh, to her coming and uh, plucking out a few power cords on the harp in order for us to praise God. The verse is picking up on a picture, isn't it? It's saying it's picking up on those many ways that we can praise God. It's saying in all the different ways that you can praise God, what's important is why. Why? Verse 8, He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. Why should we praise God? Because he sends rain. Because he makes things grow. Because he gives food to animals. Look at verse 9 again. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. I think that's an amazing picture. God listens to the call of birds who are hungry. He hears them and he feeds them. Isn't that great? What a loving heavenly father we have that he listens to the call of a a bird who's starving on the golf course, you know, over there. And God provides. That's how God looks after his creation. And that leads the writer to a much more important point in verses 10 and 11. He says, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him and who put their hope in his unfailing love. That is, access to God isn't based on our strength or our prowess or our power or anything like that. It's based on our trust in him. Like the raven, we call out to him and he helps. I've just been reading uh, this book called Status Anxiety, which is about, unsurprisingly, status anxiety. And it's not a Christian book, uh, but in it the author talks about the rise of the meritocracy, which is a word I'd never heard of. But uh, a meritocracy is a system wherein... Uh, people, people's position in society is based on their merit, what they've achieved. In an aristocracy, uh, you know, people's position is based on the families that they're born into. If you're born into a rich family, you have a good reputation. If you're born into a poor family, you, know, you have a low status in society. Nowadays, Western societies aspire to this idea that uh, everyone has equal opportunities uh, and what you make of it, that sort of determines how good, how good you are. Uh, everyone can, every person can make of their lives what they want, or so the idea goes anyway. Now for numerous reasons that doesn't work out. You know, uh, There are complications in life uh, and there are obstacles and hindrances and all that kind of stuff. But the downside of this kind of meritocracy idea that's risen in our societies over the last 200 years is that if you don't succeed, there's no one to blame except yourself. If your position in society is based on merit and you have a low position, if you're working out of the idea of the meritocracy, then the reason that you have a low position is because you're a complete failure. In the past I could blame my birth. Say, well, I was born into a poor family. Now if I'm poor and unsuccessful, the only reason, according to the story that the world tells us, the only reason, the only reason that there can be is because I'm a failure. It's a horribly depressing idea, isn't it? It's awful. It puts immense pressure on everybody. Well, that's how the world looks at people's status. What have you achieved? How good are you? But look at how the writer of this psalm says it works with God. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man, God doesn't look favourably on people because of their slim hips or their tight abs or because they've built 10 businesses from the ground up or because they've got 11 PhDs from universities all over the world or because 3,000 people have liked them on Facebook. What does God delight in? He doesn't delight in any of those things but he delights in those who fear him and trust in his unfailing love. Isn't that beautiful? What does the world say? The world says, if you haven't made it, it's because you're a failure. What does the Bible say? What does the psalm say? How do you have status with God? It's not by being a success. It's by trusting in his unfailing love. You can be a complete failure, but God's love is unfailing. God has regard for those who put their trust in him your life might be falling horribly to pieces but if you trust in Jesus and hope in his love then you belong to God's family and like the simple raven who calls on God God hears the simple person who calls on him as well so the psalm says adore God and celebrate God because of his provision So uh, the writer encourages us to celebrate God's salvation, he encourages us to celebrate God's provision and next he urges us to celebrate God's protection in verse 12 to 14. Verse 12, "Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Why? For he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. I kind of have to feel here for the gluten-free people, that the promise uh, is of the finest wheat. We'll get to that in a moment. The psalm is drawing here on the Old Testament imagery where Jerusalem, or Zion as it was also known, was the city of God. We've seen that already. But here it's displayed as uh, portrayed as a fortress maintained and protected by God. The picture, translated into New Testament realities, is of the people... Uh, who trust in Jesus, being like citizens of a city whose gates are strengthened so that the city won't fall. A a city whose gates are are strengthened, a city whose, whose people are cared for and provided for, a city whose people enjoy peace, a city whose people enjoy protection from enemies and a city which is provided with food. The idea being picked up on, I think, is that uh, in ancient times, the way that you uh, could destroy a city was not only by laying siege to it and by hurling great rocks at it and kind of demolishing the walls and breaking through the gates, one of the other ways that you could you know, to break through into a city was by starving people to death. And the writer is saying, there's no attack, there's, you know, they won't break down the gates and they won't starve you to death. There's nothing that they can do. There is no attack of Satan against those who belong to Jesus that will ultimately succeed. That is great news, isn't it, on a personal level. It means that nothing that Satan can throw at you, if you trust in Jesus, there is nothing that Satan can throw at you which will undermine your faith. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Whatever the temptation, God gives us the strength to resist. There is no strike weapon of Satan. There's no long drawn out grinding siege that he can bring against you that will destroy and undermine your trust in Jesus Christ. But it's great news, I think, this message, not only at a personal level but also at the level of the church worldwide. Sometimes it may look as though the church is under siege and it's going under. If you look at the the church all over the world, it looks like it's falling to pieces, isn't it? You look at uh, the church in Australia uh, and you just think, what's going on? Where? you know, everything's going to pieces. But the psalm says, those who truly belong to Christ will not be destroyed. The true people of God throughout the whole world will not fail. They are like a city whose gates have been strengthened. They are like a city which is protected and provided for. And so the psalm says, adore God and celebrate God because of his protection. Celebrate God because of his salvation. Celebrate God because of his provision. Celebrate God because of his protection. And finally, celebrate God because of his word. The theme of God's word runs all the way through the verses from verse 15 to the end. Look at uh, verse 15 of the psalm. He sends his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. And look at what it does in verse 16. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. And he does that all just with a word. Uh, I'm not sure if any of the Apple devotees here have the new uh, iPhone 4S uh, with the Siri technology, uh, but that phone purports to be able to, uh, you know, listen to someone speaking to it and to to undertake some tasks. You know, you can uh, so you can just speak to it and write message to you know whoever, and and it does it all. You know, put an appointment in calendar, and uh, and it will do it. Since uh, Star Trek, that's kind of been the holy grail of technology, hasn't it? You know, that just being able to speak to computers and, and, and them undertaking the task. And you might think that doing that is, is breathtaking, that it's amazing, you know, that technology could do that. But that doesn't hold a candle to what this psalm is saying that God can do, does it? In fact, the iPhone 4S looks kind of embarrassingly inadequate God speaks a word and makes snow. He speaks again and it's blown away. It disappears. He throws hail on an entire stretch of countryside like, like you or I might pick up a handful of pebbles and throw them down. Just a word and it happens. Think of Genesis God spoke a few words, let there be, and a universe sprang into being. And so the psalmist says, adore and celebrate God because with a single word, he can change the course of nature and the course of history. But if that wasn't incredible enough, that same powerful word which he spoke to creation and a world sprang into being, that same powerful word which creates and destroys, which spreads snow and melts ice, that same powerful creative word he's given to his people. He's given to us. Those words are in this book, this little book. In this book are words which can change people's lives. In this book are words which by the power of the Holy Spirit can generate faith and recreate people in the image of Jesus
0: Christ.
1: In this this book are words which can transform immature Christians into mature Christians. They're powerful words because they're words about Jesus and they're powerful words because... Jesus is ruling and upholding all these words according to his Father's will. And the thing is, he's given them to us. He doesn't mean that it, the, the right of the Son doesn't mean he's given these words to us so that we can hold them onto them, so that we can closet them away. No, he's given us these words so that we can speak them adoringly and lovingly so that we can share these words about God and about Jesus. The point is God's given us these words about his son, these powerful words, so that we can speak them into the lives of other people. Here is the last reason that the psalm gives us to praise God. We should praise God because he's given us words of life because he's given us words of life not only for ourselves but words of life to share with other people. Paul writes, for God who said let light shine out of darkness made this, his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Here is the encouragement of the psalm designed to draw our minds out of the small and insignificant things which we so easily become uh, focused on. Here is the encouragement. Adore and celebrate God because of his salvation, because of his provision, because of his protection and because of his words of life. Remind each other of God's mighty power. Speak adoringly to other people of God. Sing songs about God while you drive the car. Pray back to God adoring words about his greatness. Pray back to God adoring words about his kindness and his love. This isn't a chore. It's not a new heavy burden to take up. It's not a an obligation. It's a delight and a joy and it's right and it's good. Let me pray.
0: Dear Heavenly Father,
1: you are such an amazing God. Lord, you spoke a word and the world came into existence. And Lord, it continues to function and to work and to hold together because you continue to speak and you continue to uphold it. Lord, you send the rain and the sun. You make food grow for us to eat. Lord, you look after the things that swim in the ocean and the birds that fly in the air and everything that walks over the ground. Lord, they call to you and you hear them and provide for them. Lord, nothing is too small to escape your notice and we marvel at that. Lord, days go by when We forget about things and we forget to do things and yet you, Lord, never forget. No creature of yours, no thing of yours is ever out of your mind. Lord, we praise you because your concern is not for those who are great and for, and for those who are mighty but for those who are humble and lowly and broken hearted. And Lord we thank you for that because Lord we know that we're not great and mighty but most of us have immense struggles Lord, all of us are failures in one thing or another. But Lord, we rejoice because your love is unfailing. And so we put our hope in that. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our mouths to be able to speak words of adoration and love about you.